Hello, everybody. My name is Ben Kitchings. As always, there are a zillion podcasts out there. Thank you very, very, very much for listening to mine. I'm here with Ben Donsky, who is an urban planner and a podcaster. And we are going to talk about basically um, cities and his city in particular, but cities and some of the things they, you know, trends we notice, things like that. So, Ben, why don't you get us kicked off? Great. Well, thank you, Ben. Always great to meet another Ben. And I'm really excited to talk to you today about locally what I have been involved with here in New York City and in Staten Island in particular. Uh, And I'm happy to also talk about trends that might we might be seeing across the country that I can speak to from my professional point of view. Because I know you're interested in hearing about what's happening in different cities. And I know you've talked to a couple other people uh, so far as well. Oh, Lordy. Well, okay. So let me, let me get, I've told my listeners this so much. I might actually edit this part out, but (laughs) So, um, I started doing this podcast and I started talking about COVID. It was a podcast about the Spanish flu, but I started doing a podcast about COVID. And in the course of doing that, I noticed a lot of changes and a lot of people dealing with a lot of changes. And so gradually this podcast evolved into me talking to people about their universe, about their world. And one of the things that I noticed, and I don't know that the average person would notice this unless they talked to literally people all over the planet, is that there's a lot of people sitting around or doing their job or whatever, but they're thinking, my city's never going to be the same, right? Things are never going to be the same after this. And what's amazing is that's literally everybody. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I I think, though, what we've seen speaking across the country first is that Mm -hmm. a lot of the predictions around the death of cities that we heard so often in last spring, those were wrong. And that's not to say that things are going to return to the way they were several years ago. But I would say one of the major legacies of the COVID-19 pandemic for cities is that it exacerbated and accelerated a lot of existing trends. And that includes working from home, which I think was already a major factor that was beginning to affect the office market in real estate and central business districts, uh, especially as tech companies embraced work from home and work for any work from anywhere for more and more of their employees. Mm. And that has gradually 
filtered out, I think, into other industries, similarly to how we saw the previous innovations of the tech office, namely putting in games and snacks and giving everybody free food in order to keep them happy and at work for longer hours. As we saw that filter out beyond the tech industry, we also saw work from home and work from anywhere begin to filter out even before the pandemic. And as an, as a small business owner, as an entrepreneur who has young employees, this was clearly something that, that I had seen prior to COVID-19. So I'm not at all surprised that a lot of people want to continue to work from home. And I think that cities across the country their downtowns are going to be dramatically different than five years ago or 10 years ago and that they will have to evolve from purely office to really mixed use centers that still have a lot of density but have a much heavier residential component. And again, this is something that predates the pandemic, but it's very much so actually, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really, it's something that's 20 or 25 years old, that trend. If, if you want to, if you want to, I mean, historicize it, honestly, like, um, this was even going on prior to the crash, prior to the crash of 2008. Um, for sure. Um, Oh yeah. We have cities, I mean, so take Atlanta as, as an mm-hmm. example. So Atlanta actually began trying to expand its downtown residential population in the 1990s. And it's, you know, it hasn't been, I think more recently that it's finally gotten, we've seen more traction in Atlanta, but I think Atlanta kind of struggled to develop residential properties downtown um, until say, I don't know, the last last decade or so. But yeah, you're absolutely right that this is something that predates the 2008 crash. It really goes back, I would I would argue, to the 1990s. Well, I would say um, I would say there's a couple um, there was a couple forces that happened um, with Atlanta. Um, now again, I'm stu- I'm somebody that. I've studied my hometown for, oh, Jesus, let me think, a couple of decades at least at this point. Um, and what I would say is that one of the big barriers to, to urbanization beyond the, um, well, beyond certain, I guess, the baby, the white baby boomers just not wanting to live in the city in the first place was the fact that um, Atlanta is, I think they refer to it as a pizza city. So it's like you have different hubs. You have the same metro area, but you have different hubs. You have different job hubs, that kind of thing. Right. So we have a place that we call downtown, and we think of it as downtown. But if you were to look at the demographic data and the and the money data and all that, you would see that actually we have several downtowns. Right. You know, Buckhead <laughs> is actually the largest office district in Atlanta, not 
downtown, and I believe Midtown is number two. Right, and I think I might even San... have those reversed. I might Midtown might be number one, and Buckhead might be number two, but downtown I think is Sandy definitely Springs not is up there. Yeah, Sandy Springs is another one that has a large concentration yeah. of jobs. Yeah, Sandy Springs, Dunwoody. Um, the thing I've noticed, even just in my own little neighborhood, like just in my own little suburban neighborhood, is I've noticed people, literally, like working adults, literally coming to this year-long realization of, okay, I don't have to come into the office anymore. Oh, absolutely. That's, um, yeah. so I'll, I'll tell you, I, I, so I started, I left my previous job in May of 2019 to go out on my own with my own consulting business. And 10 months later, I was working from home because of the pandemic. But in that initial 10 months, I still continued to go to an office every day because that's what I had done my entire working life. And even though I was my own boss and I had the freedom to do what I wanted, my mindset was, all right, I need to get into an office because that's where work is done. And I will tell you that for me, it was a real eye-opening experience mm. to understand the kind of control that I can exert over my own life and how I can improve my own quality of life and spend more time with my family by virtue of mm. eliminating my commute. And I think a lot of other people would have the exact same experience as me. And and then there was um there was this um which I mean I did a podcast with a with a uh, a friend of mine, an acquaintance really, but somebody I've known in the past. And that podcast for what the millennials call hashtag reasons um did not make the internet and that's a shame. But he did say something that I've thought about a heck of a lot, especially with this so-called worker shortage. Okay. He said that at some point during the pandemic, during the heart of the pandemic, he and his wife sat down and, and thought, you know what? As long as essentially like, honey, you don't have to work. As long as we don't do X, Y, and Z, right? And as long as your baby, as long as you're watching the children while I'm at the job, you don't actually have to work. And I wonder if a lot of people are thinking that. Honestly, I think people have really reevaluated their relationship to work over the last oh. fifteen months, right? Oh, and for sure. So my one of my brothers is the general manager of a small restaurant group mm-hmm. and he is you know right in the middle of that um employee quote unquote shortage and so I was actually mm-hmm. talking to him yesterday I said so how how's it going are you able to find people he said no we're ha- still having a really really hard time but what he has noticed is that in the food service industry, where obviously a lot of where the 
the talk about a worker shortage is coming from. What he's saying is that the the people who he used to work with, a lot of them are back in school, either in college or grad school. And mm-hmm. now their availability is much more limited. And they also feel that with all of this talk about an employee shortage, he said that a lot of people understand that they have a lot more leverage than they did previously. And they're just not willing to accept certain working conditions uh, that, that they might have in the past. Now he's lucky enough to, to work for a restaurant group that has a, a reputation of treating its employees well. But, you know, he said it is, it's very, very challenging. Um, and that a lot of people are leaving food and beverage to do work that is you know, not as demanding and where the hours are, are not as um, untraditional. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've got another thought, another one of these elephant in the room thoughts. And actually, this thought was not originally mine. I saw, I saw this thought on uh, this woman I follow on Twitter. It's her, it's her thought, and I'm just saying it into the world. Um, so what if a lot of people got on social media and saw these videos of people serving people in face shields and you had customers laughing at people laughing at their server and things like that. And they thought, you know, why do I want to do that? Right. And then I'm somebody that I have I have talked to folks literally all over the planet. And I'm here to tell you, there's a lot more COVID floating around than anybody thinks because I've just talked to people and they'll tell me things like so-and-so's in a coma or, you know, so-and-so lost an arm or I know six people that have it. Or I know one guy I talked to told me he listed, I forget how many people, but it was a lot. And I really thought about this and I thought about also, I thought about how virtually everybody I talked to, except for a couple of people, they couldn't find people. There was people missing out of their lives. And so I had a lawyer on who specialized in homelessness. And she said that before the pandemic, you had 34 vacant structures per homeless person in this country. And then after the pandemic, we it opened up a chasm. Okay? Now, Walk with me here for a second, right? In order to apply for a job, what do you need? An address. You need an address. What else do you need? Well, um, some way for people to contact you. Uh Uh-huh. There's the elephant in the room that both of us are using right now and you haven't said yet. Well, you, you need a home? You need the internet. Oh, the internet. I, I yeah, I think for for I guess that is true. I mean, I I just saw earlier today. 
I did not realize the dominance of Indeed and I think one other website in job searches, and I did not realize how universal those had become. And and frankly, I my my brother who I talked to yesterday said that he does post ads on everything from uh, Indeed to Craigslist when he's looking for people. Well, okay, so. All right, but do you see what I'm you see the tree I'm driving at or barking yeah. up or whatever modifier you want to use there that you might have people that they're they literally cannot apply for jobs not because they don't want to or whatever but because they can't. <laughs> you know. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> we don't we don't track the the homeless homelessness very well in this country. And we talk about homelessness and we think about homelessness oftentimes in ways that do not track with reality and that at any, any given point, most of the people who are homeless on a given day, they're not necessarily the chronically homeless. These and are not right. Yeah, These are people experiencing, um, a combinate usually like a job loss or some type mm. of medical debt or some combination of factors that have you know caused them to get evicted or lose the place where they had previously been staying and they are crashing on a friend's couch they don't have a permanent address but you know they they probably will again at some point in in the next year right in the next several mm -hmm. months um but mm -hmm. that's not our view of ho homelessness our view of homelessness is is you know a person on a city street corner with a cup begging for change mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. absolutely right and the fact is that that a lot of people i mean there's a lot of people out there that could very easily fit into the federal definition of homelessness that are not actually uh, not to be too uh, flippant about it, but they're not sleeping outside, right? They're not in a shelter. They're not outside. They're on somebody's couch or, or whatever. And also, I mean, you and I, I don't know how old you are, but life has a way of, of you, you just keep transitioning, right? There's this thing where you can just, you know, the, the next thing in your life doesn't really happen. And that's probably true for a lot of people. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean. Yeah. And, and, and but as a result of all of that, right, we would not be able to capture the magnitude of homelessness or and more specifically, you know, what you're alluding to in terms of the lack of of regular Internet access and an inability to pursue a job despite despite wanting one exactly and i also right. say a lot of people have moved is another for, a lot of young people have moved for right? real and for real right they moved back home they left cities so um again this brother with the restaurant group this is part of this is in a uh, big city major metropolitan area and he said oh yeah a lot of the people who used to 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 work for us and they moved back to Montana or Nevada or Texas or whatever it was where their parents live. 
And then he said a lot of their um, a lot of their immigrant employees went back to Mexico. What about because I've noticed this, um, I've noticed what appears to be peer like people of the same age basically like bunking up or um like you might have couples living together in a single family house now or or something like that what about that has he noticed that because i sure well multi-generational households are increasingly part of um part of the landscape here across the United States. And again, this is something that predates the pandemic, but the pandemic almost certainly accelerated. I haven't seen any, you know, fresh recent data on this. What? Well, I don't mean like multi-generational because that's a gimme. What I'm talking about is like the same generation. Looks like they're friend groups. So I yeah. would guess that is it's this it's part of the same phenomenon and i would too <laughs> and i would think that that is a situation you end up in when you don't have family members who can share the cost with you for whatever reason because or ultimately maybe they live somewhere that's really remote yeah yeah exactly whatever. exactly and yeah there are all kinds of reasons that you wouldn't be able to necessarily live right. with family but you still need to grow Somewhere your household with. side yes. yeah yeah i get it and um, and i i mean i i look we have a huge housing affordability crisis in this country and yes we do <laughs> right and and um unfortunately right now i don't see that changing but I, so i i think we'll continue to see more multi-generational households, more non-traditional, quote-unquote, living arrangements. Because I think it's also important to remember that this idea of a nuclear family living together in a single-family house is a fairly recent idea. And yeah. it's one that is, is, you know, is really a blip in, in how mm. people live together if you look at even just modern society. Right. And also, like, I mean, and I don't know if you can talk intelligently on this or not, but maybe you could. Um, I noticed on the eve of the pandemic in Atlanta, in Metro Atlanta, at least, it was honestly cheaper for me to rent an entire house, like a whole house, than it would be for me to get a one-bedroom apartment. Now, of course, we're not talking about the same neighborhood, okay? But I'm saying whole house, 700, 800, apartment, 2,000. Right. You know? I mean, so do you see that continuing or exacerbating or what? I think that is... So I think there's there's more going on there than just the desirability of a particular dwelling unit, right? Mm -hmm. It is also about who is renting that house and why are they willing to rent it at that price? 
and who is renting that apartment and why do they feel uh, comfortable holding at that price if they're having trouble leasing. And so I think, you know, that has to do obviously with who owns those properties. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it also, um, you know, it, it also, it has to do with a lot of aspects of urban economics and how land use economics really works. Okay. But I would say that it is not out of the question that a lot of the ex-urban, meaning, you know, the fringe metropolitan area development that we've mm-hmm. seen over the last 20 years, it's not crazy at all to think that those might be the, um, you know, some of the, for, you know, the more troubled areas in the future, right? I can totally see because of their geographic isolation, the impact of climate change on our, on the cost of energy and our trans and our transportation networks. I can completely see a scenario 50 years down the line, maybe sooner where all Mm. of those McMansions that Mm. were built, you know, way out with an hour commute into the central city or an hour 15 commute or hour 30 commute into the central two city. hours even some yeah two hours where, yeah where, where i live yeah for real. yeah those are the places where there's not going to be any economic opportunity and those are the places that that may end up being largely abandoned you know as, as a result of a lot of different factors like i said i think we're still several decades away from something like well, that ma- maybe not in a way because without throwing the specific town under the bus um there's a town in metro atlanta that was planned god i guess like i became aware of it in my capacity as a journalist 14 ish years ago maybe maybe so it was planned before that. But what I noticed going to these planning meetings is these people, these wannabe city fathers, were sitting around this map of a county that shall remain nameless, and they were drawing magic marker lines on this map, and they weren't really including any job centers. <laughs> they made a bunch of parkland, and, and they just thought, you know, the it was very, very short-sighted, even at the time, I thought, right? Yeah. And now you see the next generation of those city mothers and fathers sort of having to reckon with what's going on in their town. So they're having to incorporate businesses and things like that. Oh yeah, I, I so, so when I was in grad school, we what my very first semester of grad school for urban planning. So this is almost twenty years ago now. So the modeling has obviously gotten a lot more sophisticated, but at the time it was kind of the first first generation of analytics software that would allow you to put in. A variety of different inputs, development inputs, such as, 
we want we're we're going to build x many residential units and this percentage will be single family detached homes this will be townhomes these will be apartments you can put in lot sizes you put in all these different variables and you also put in how much commercial development and different types of commercial development in terms of retail versus office versus industrial development and so it allows you to kind of play planner and one of the very first things that they drive home for urban planning graduate students is that commercial properties on the whole and as a rule of thumb will generate net revenues for a municipality whereas a residential unit typically will result in a deficit for a municipality. You lose money for every residential unit you build because you have to provide schools and more police and on and on and on, whereas commercial development does not require nearly as many services. And so I think across, across the country, it's not just the suburbs of Atlanta, suburban communities across the country are having to reckon with this and having to figure out, you know, how do we attract commercial investment in our, in our small downtown or in, you know, some area of our town when we have previously established our reputation as being very anti-commercial development. And I actually think that the pandemic um, provides a huge opportunity for a lot of these a lot of these towns and a lot of these suburban centers, you know, mm. at, like we said earlier in the conversation with people now wanting to work from home and certainly all of the leaders of firms of consulting firms and design firms that I talk to, I don't think anybody is going back five days a week, two or three days a week seems to be the norm. I I think that's even I saw okay so because I run a podcast <laughs> and I'm I'm much too old to be on this site um for for its original use right but because I run a podcast I got on Discord okay as soon as I was on Discord do you know what Discord is yep and like you I have uh-huh. an account for my podcast right so I bet you know what I'm about to say too. As soon as I got on Discord, I thought, "Oh, okay. See, here's the deal. When the when the 15 year olds using Discord now, when they get old enough to have office jobs, the offices are going to go away because you can multiple, you can massively share, you can massively can't you know um converse with people you can massively do video conferencing and stuff massively with i forget how many people it is but it's a whole lot of people and i'm just thinking oh boy (laughs) you know like yeah but i will say that um i think that there's an inherent tension between 
technology and human nature and our desire to be social creatures. And mm-hmm. I, I would, I think that there is a different level of intimacy in an interaction that's face to face. And that mm-hmm. intimacy is still important for relationship building and business development. And as mm-hmm. long as it's safe to meet people in person, I think it's going to be the, the preferred option when we're talking about that type of business development. I, and I'll tell you, I, I think that's, so I don't think it's ever, I don't think it's ever going away entirely, but I do think that a lot of these suburban communities, smaller communities. So in your neck of the woods, a place maybe like Decatur. Mm-hmm. These are the types of places that can take advantage of their physical location and the fact that they do have some degree of density, right? Downtown Decatur is not midtown Atlanta, but it's a charming but, little place downtown Decatur. Yeah, and wouldn't <laughs> and wouldn't it be nice if instead if you lived, you know, a 15-minute drive from downtown Decatur, and you had to do an in-person meeting for whatever reason you had to to see some of your coworkers or some of your clients mm-hmm. wouldn't it be nice to office in downtown Decatur rather than downtown Atlanta I think you're okay let me I'm going to I'm going to throw something at you here I think you're right for us for people our age which for the purposes of this podcast, you and I are the same age because this, this podcast is going to stretch into time, okay? But when I think of the five-year-olds, right? When I think of these kids, these children that have never played in person with anybody, right? Okay? When I think of these little kids raising themselves in chat rooms and these middle schoolers raising themselves in chat rooms, okay? I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. When I was taking political science classes, okay, we were, we could read the best political scientific thinkers of our age. And they would all tell us that society was going to go a certain way because of these reasons, okay? Now, what those people never never thought about was that we were about to have the great recession. You were about to have people that because of parents disposable income or their disposable income, they could not go to the mall. They could not go to different places to hang out. So they had to hang out on Facebook. They had to hang out in chat rooms. And so as a result of that, we developed, I don't know if you've heard this term, but we developed something called the couch monster, right? And I would argue that the last three elections, we've had to deal with this phenomenon of these people that grew up angering themselves on social media. Okay? Do you see what I'm saying? So So what I'm saying... 
let me make sure I, un- I understand. Uh, so the idea being that less face-to-face interpersonal uh, interaction and mm-hmm. a greater degree of our interactions being mediated by technology. Mm-hmm. You know, and I definitely, so I, one of my longtime interests is uh, technology, the ethics of technology, how it impacts our society. Because I, I grew up in San Francisco during the very first dot-com uh, mm-hmm. boom in the in the mid 1990s um so you know it saw all that had friends who dropped out of high school to go work in tech <laughs> and uh, so i definitely agree with the idea that mediated interactions do alienate us a bit from the humanity of the person on the other end of the conversation is that kind of where you're going well i'm not just going there i mean but that that is an outcome but i am saying that you've got an entire generation of children now maybe two generations of kids honestly that don't really have that let's go to the mall experience that that let's go to the mall thought that let's go here and as they get older they're not going to want to have the in-person interactions. Okay. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. I, okay. You're, you're, you're arguing essentially that because, because a lot of people are now growing up with less and less in-person social interaction and physically going to different places that that desire is not being seated and they may not seek out those types of experiences as adults. Exactly. And there's, I mean, that's not all negative. There's positive stuff to that. I mean, Lord knows I've certainly uh, started friendships with people all over the world um, through different chat apps and stuff. Lord knows I, I talk to folks all over the planet all the time now. And I wasn't doing that in 2019. Um. So it's not all negative. I'm I'm not saying that. But I am saying that this idea of, I think they call it collisions. You know, the collisions don't have to happen in person. Right? They can happen online. You know, the, but, this idea yeah, that they, they like-minded can, but, people. Can yeah, sure, sure, sure. I think, though, that's different than the serendipitous interactions that can happen in a city mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. purely by accident. Oh, for sure. Right? And For sure. And I, I definitely think there are positive things about it and the ability to seek out like-minded people who have similar interests. I, I think that's fantastic. I mean, I'm in the same boat as you. I've, I've met with and have develop friendships with people all over the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I, you know, I, I don't know, you know, I, I look predicting the future is obviously it's impossible, but right. 
<laughs> I still, you know, I and call it um, you can call me a, a bit naive, but I do think there is something immutable about being a human being. Oh, for sure. I mean, for sure, you're going to have like, hey, let's. OK, so we met on instant. We met on chat. And we live sort of in the same vicinity. So let's, okay, let's hang out or whatever. Let's go here. Let's go there. Fine. Sure. Great. Wonderful. But, and I'm not saying that folks like you or I, or even folks that are, that were old enough to drive in 2019. Okay. Are, are going to want to have the virtual only or virtual mostly, but I'm wondering about everybody else. So I'll tell you, I have a five-year-old son. Well, I have a son turning five this year. Okay. And so he has been in public school because we live in New York City. Um, he's He has been in public school already for two years. And the last two years, we obviously have not had traditional school years. So... Okay, so 20 and 21. All right. Yeah. So for him, I can say that for a four-year-old, while the while having mom and dad around and having their attention and getting a lot more time with grandma and grandpa, while he loved all of that. I think, but he also wants to go hang out with his fellow four-year-olds. I get it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. He really <laughs> is so much happier yeah. as soon as he was able to go back to school in person. Yeah, I, I get it. But I don't know if the, his workplace, you know, and thinking about what his his professional life, like what it might be like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know if he's ever going to have a job that he is expected to show up at a certain place at a certain time, five days a week. I actually would kind of be surprised if that was the case. Okay. I'll I'll give you, I'll give you an example, Uh, an example that I helped uh, somebody with. Um, There is a professor who was in one country. Okay. Because of the pandemic. All right. His class was in another country. His students were in another country, right? And he reached out to me to ask me how to set up a podcast so that he could educate. So he essentially, so he could continue to educate his students. So I helped him do that. And it occurred to both of us while we were doing this that this is going to be the future, right? Because I don't know how much you know about higher ed, but in-person higher ed is expensive. It's expensive to operate. It's expensive to run. There's a lot of people you have to pay. Um, things like that. A lot of I'm buildings. Very, very familiar up. with it, actually. Uh, my father spent most of his career as uh, an administrator in higher education. Okay. Okay. So you see so, what I'm Yeah, and, and yeah. well he spent the last 
I guess now 20 years and he's essentially retired now, but Mm -hmm. um, the last 20 years he's been helping universities around the country and around the world with um, creating and expanding their adult education programs. Mm -hmm. And the move to online and virtual education, it may, you know, I, I know it's been something in adult ed and continuing ed for a long time. It basically, as soon as, as, as the technology was at all feasible, they started to move in, into that um, for, you know, because in a lot of ways, you know, if you have a continuing ed student, they might not have the same expectations as an undergraduate who's 18 or 19 mm-hmm. in terms of um, interpersonal interaction. And then also an adult tends to have a busier life and they're, it's a solution for them. They say, oh, this is great. If I don't actually have to physically be there more than once a week or once a month, this is fantastic. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I understand, you know, that that trend. Uh, yeah. And right. But I also think the thing that we're missing, the thing that we're I'm te- if I didn't know this, like if I if I didn't see it with my own two beady, beady little eyes. Right. I would miss this trend entirely. And that is increasingly there's a lot of um, teenagers and 20 somethings that that want to play video games. They, they don't they you know, they're they're living more of their life virtually anyway. And I wonder if the pandemic has exacerbated that just like it exacerbated everything else. I think for some people. Yeah. I, I you know, I, I don't know mm-hmm. enough. I don't have teenagers and I, I don't know enough people with teenagers to even have anecdotal. I'm very uh, information about that. I'm very curious. Um, yeah. A, a, about that. But, you know, I'll say I, I can tell you in my line of work and what I do specifically, which is, uh, develop public spaces mm-hmm. and help activate them. The mm-hmm. thirst, the thirst for social interaction right now is something that I have never seen in my career. And I have clients th- putting out events right now, the most bare bones basic thing they can do and they're quickly at capacity for an event just the the attendance right now is off the charts off the charts off the charts what about food halls and things like that food halls were kind of a newer thing before the pandemic are they coming back or they you know so I think that a lot of places that were developed as food halls were going to go out of business anyway, because the food hall, huh? for a food hall to be successful, you have to have both uh, lunch business and dinner business. And oh, it really needs yeah. to have both day, both of those meals covered. Mm-hmm. And the really, the way you do that is by 
having a large residential population and a large office population within close walking or very close driving distance. And if you don't have that, it's not going to work. The other thing about food halls is that the structure of how they're actually operated typically is that you have one business that is the master lease, you could call it, for the food hall. And that is usually, 99% of the time, the bar in that food hall. Whoever is is selling the, uh-huh. the liquor. And all of the food vendors are subtenants to that master tenant. Uh-huh. And okay. so you will see in food halls, businesses come and go in terms of the food businesses and the ones that have left are have have gone out of business and they can quickly bring in a new tenant and so i wouldn't necessarily expect food halls to collapse but i would expect that in places where you don't have a continuing strong office presence as well as a residential presence, you will see a lot more turnover. And eventually, you would might see those places start to, to shrink. Mm-hmm. The, the food, the, mm-hmm. You might see food halls start to shrink and that um, the person who runs that bar might say in their next lease negotiation, I want to take less square footage. I want fewer food stalls in my lease and part of that space then gets converted into some other, some other use. Um, so, but I actually think on the flip side of that food halls are attractive to the food entrepreneurs because there's a much lower capital investment in setting up and getting set up Mm. because typically Mm. the person who owns that bar is actually buying all the kitchen equipment for every food stall. So they can quickly, you know, someone's not working out, they can get rid of them and bring in somebody new. And so it lowers the barrier of entry. So, you know, there, it's a countervailing force to these food halls closing is that there will be, you know, more, there is a good supply of new potential tenants in an environment where it's hard t- for people to raise capital. Mm-hmm. And there's also probably a lot of... Um... I mean, a lot of people, I mean, for every one of these, hey, I learned how to cook during the pandemic. There's probably also a lot of people that are like, yeah, I I, I would give anything for, I don't know, orange pill beef again or for uh, General Tso's chicken or whatever, right? Sushi. <laughs> you know, I'm, I tell you, man, I, uh, I did uh, a deep dive podcast on the Spanish flu. And so I, I learned about, like influences and things like like viruses and things yeah the thing i pull away is all my all my proteins going to be cooked from now on really (laughs) yeah 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 (laughs) i'm you might have to point me to a specific episode (laughs) (laughs) oh oh no i will happily plug my podcast to anybody anybody under the sun but there's I think in one of the first two episodes I do, I do an overview of what a virus is 
and how to get like how to get a virus and how viruses happen at all right and the bottom line is you want to cook your food okay <laughs> okay i will uh, i will i'll i'll take your word for it and, and and then go listen to that that podcast but and by the way um another just another thing that just occurred to me when we talked about the countervailing forces that are going to help and hurt food halls and another thing about downtown real estate that i think is worth talking about especially with the office sector is that the trend prior to the pandemic in the office sector was to squeeze as many people into as small a space as possible. Mm -hmm. Right. With the whole first, it went, we went to open floor plans. Then we said, okay, we're getting rid of assigned desks and everybody will just sit at these big long tables and you have no assigned seat. And, you know, the idea was just basically squeeze as many people into a space as possible to lower your uh, overhead um, and lower your real estate costs. And that is not going to fly anymore. And so mm. at the same time that companies are going to office fewer employees in central business districts, the countervailing trend for that is going to be that they are also going to be renting a much larger number of square feet on a per employee basis. So the real question is how those two are going to balance out. And if they're saying, okay, we're only going to have, you know, 40%. So we're going to have two, like a two day week, right? We're going to have 40% of our employees in on any given day. Well, if they are allotting two and a half times the amount of space per employee, then the amount of square footage that they're actually going to occupy stays the same. Mm -hmm. And so I think we'll see how all of that balances out, but it's not yet clear that there is going to be a, a big office vacancy glut, but I would guess that rents will not, there won't be much upward pressure on, on office rents and that the downstream effects of having fewer people in a central business district are going to be very noticeable and more noticeable to then then the changes in the office sector and what i mean what i mean by that is mm. downtown retail all of the lunch places the fast casual the sweet greens you know the mm. the all of those the up here um pret a manger and um you know all these little places that do soups and salads and sandwiches and of course, like mm. all of the more specialty fast casual places, those are the things that are going to suffer. It's it's going to be the central business district retail is mm. is going to be dramatically, dramatically different, and and fewer square feet are going to be needed. I mean, but I think we were honestly, I think we were headed in that direction anyway because, 
I mean, if you look at where a lot of the job centers are now, right? Like uh, we earlier on, we talked about Sandy Springs and and Dunwoody, and and things. Well, and I applaud you for boning up on your Atlanta geography. But one thing you I've been to Atlanta. Not... I've been working in Atlanta for a long time. So a few okay. things that you should probably do. so. In addition to my own familiarity with Atlanta, I've done a lot of work in Atlanta. But also, Atlanta is one of the cities that has been the most studied in the United States. And so as an Why undergraduate and as a graduate student, <laughs> I, you know, I, I'm not totally sure, but I'll say here's my hypotheses. I've got a, I've got a couple th- theories on that, but go ahead. <laughs> so the um, what Atlanta did post-World War II Was in explored. terms... Yeah, but also in terms of the consensus reached between the white business community and the white political elite and the black community and the and the black um, uh, community leaders at the time, um, mm-hmm. you know, created the this the conditions for all of that economic growth and created conditions that allowed for public private partnerships to develop in Atlanta at the time that nobody else, maybe with the exception of Pittsburgh, which is the other city that gets studied a lot, or one of the other cities, Pittsburgh, Chicago, and and Mm. Atlanta, I feel like were the three and now increasingly Los Angeles. Um, But for a different reason, but you know, Atlanta from a political science, I mean, you said you studied political science, right? I did. Yeah. So the Atlanta um, machine politics, mm-hmm. you know, that emerged oh. out of post World War II, I think, is a is a pretty big deal. Um, so I, I know that's a major factor, and that's one of the things that gets studied a lot. Well, yeah, okay. So what I was gonna say was, I've noticed in my life the traffic in Atlanta has dramatically increased, like dramatically. And so on a map, right, um, like I don't like uh, Sandy Springs, say the north end of Sandy Springs or say Alpharetta, right, on a map isn't very far from, say, Midtown, right? But in terms of traffic, it's forever away, right? It's just really far. Yeah, yeah. And I really honestly think that a lot of people, so before the pandemic, there were a lot of people in my own life and my friends and my family that were literally thinking, all right, it's no longer feasible for me to go to say the Braves, right? It's just, it's not feasible. Even with the suburban move, it's not feasible for me to go to Truist Park or whatever they call it this week. Right. Right. (laughs) Because the traffic is just the traffic is just horrendous or like. um, So I really think like a lot of it's like I said on another podcast, I said, I think this idea that we had to turn downtowns or center cities into basically theme parks was a dumb idea. But I don't think we knew that at the time. Right. (laughs) I certainly didn't know it. 
And I'm yeah. not here saying, you know what I'm saying? Well, I'm, I'm actually, here, go, go ahead. ahead. I'm, I'm not, not here saying that I'm okay. <laughs> no, you go ahead and then I'll fire. <laughs> I, well, I'm just saying, I'm not sure I totally follow. I don't, I'm not sure I totally follow the, the connection that you just made to downtown as entertainment destination. Are you talking about in terms of the trend because the traffic in terms of like the, in terms of the traffic, in terms of the fact that, okay. Example. I used to live in Midtown, right? I watched Midtown Atlanta transition from a place where you could go to the target to a place where you you had to go to another city to go to the target right because what had happened was the target was replaced by some boutique situation and you didn't need the boutique situation you needed a block of cheese and a cheese grater or a block of cheese, a cheese grater, and a lamp, right? Yeah. And so what I saw was I saw – I was telling my dad yesterday that it amazed me living there. It amazed me how many of my neighbors, my actual neighbors, that I would see in Alpharetta because we needed to go buy cheese and a cheese grater, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. You know what I'm well, saying? Well, and, and there's, again, like – Right. Thinking about land use economics, Mm -hmm. the the target needs a lot of parking. It needs um, a lot of space. And it has a lot more options for where it can locate than a boutique. The boutique. Exactly. Exactly. Right. The boutique is therefore going to be able, because of all those factors, the boutique is going to be able to pay a higher rent on a square footage basis. And Mm -hmm. while it might be dramatically smaller, in an environment where you are replacing targets with boutiques, that's a pretty big rent differential. And Mm -hmm. if that's going on, I'm also going to assume that a lot of that other space that had been occupied by the target can now get occupied by a lot of other smaller businesses that also can pay much higher rents. Well, the other thing that was going on was the rent, even back then, was the the rent for apartments, even back then, was dramatically rising. Um, There's also this phenomenon in Atlanta that you probably have everywhere else in America, where people come in to your city, uh, people come into the city to to have fun runs, to have the Fourth of July run, to have you know the various pride parades and whatever else they want to do culturally, blah blah blah. And that's all great and wonderful and and whatever. But if you live there and you see it week to week, it's really annoying. Yeah, there's a couple different things that I want to parse out of what you're just talking about right now. So first, there's the difference between economic development and gentrification. So Mm -hmm. the way I think about those two things, economic development is when the benefits 
of a project or initiative accrue primarily to the people who are already living in a community. And gentrification is when those benefits primarily accrue to new arrivals. And so we've seen the massive, massive amounts of gentrification in cities all across the country. Mm -hmm. We've also seen a lot of economic development, too. But I can tell you, when I lived in lower Manhattan, when my wife and I lived there, it was gentrifying. It was not developing economically. It, we we were part of a the post Sandy post Hurricane Sandy return to living in Lower Manhattan. We lived there for three years, twenty thirteen to twenty sixteen. Yeah, and as South Street Seaport, which closed as a result of Hurricane Sandy, huge retail complex which had been primarily tourist oriented mm-hmm. but you know had um had some places that you as a local you might actually shop at right there was a gap there was a banana republic right there are some mm-hmm. places like that that you'd say oh it's an easy walkable i need to go get a pair of jeans or a pair of khakis or something like that and you might actually go over there if you live nearby what was built there in the redevelopment is an entertain a rooftop entertainment venue that has you know very high price tickets for their events and um, restaurants that are you know very very high price point celebrity chef type stuff. Now there are wealthy people living in Lower Manhattan, no doubt, but. Mm-hmm. Most of the people who live in Lower Manhattan are not going to those restaurants. Those and those new stores that are open up, those are there for for very very affluent tourists. You know, not not even for your 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 main tourists. And and I'll tell you that when we were thinking about where we wanted to raise our kids, mm-hmm. we didn't cross lower manhattan off the list entirely we love cities we love density Mm -hmm. but it's not not a place for a family unfortunately it just doesn't make doesn't make sense and then when you see all the new projects that are on coming online you say well none of this looks like it's really for us now or for us in the future um so yeah Mm -hmm. i i get that um yeah and and i would say that um with regards to those to those events, I think the traditional way that cities have thought about events has been analogous to the gentrification description that I mentioned, right? Is that most of these big events, as you implied, they're not really for the people who are living there. And that's a big problem. I mean, it's like, when you take one of them at a time, it's fine, right? I mean, but when you think, like, if there's, like, a whole stretch of my weekends that it's just I have to treat it like a blizzard. So I'm going way beyond the inconvenience you know? factor. Events, right. because these types of events can catalyze economic development if they're done properly. And they are 
they're you know, if they're programmed correctly, produced correctly, and part of a larger strategy to right. catalyze investment. Well, like for example, um, I made the mistake one time of see, I'm not a college football fan. I made the mistake once of going out of my apartment on the on the weekend that Alabama, the University of Alabama, chose to open up its season in the Georgia Dome. I did that exactly once, and I never did it again. I always wanted to make sure when that Alabama game was, and I treated it literally like a snow day. Oh yeah, I when I had when I worked in you Midtown know. Manhattan, I took St. Patrick's Day off. Yeah, it's the worst worst day of the year in New York City. Worst day in in Midtown. So mm-hmm. yeah, I, I took it off. You know, we the same thing in New York, right? We we try there are places that New Yorkers avoid. There are places that you don't go on certain days or certain times of year because yeah, you don't don't want to have to deal with with all of that. And, and I get it. And I think that mm-hmm. is part and parcel of what we've been talking about in terms of, you know, carving out a, a life that is manageable and mm-hmm. comfortable and mm-hmm. not as stressful as, as it might have been several years mm-hmm. ago. Well, right. And let me, you're a, you're a city planner. Let me, let me throw my, my dream, my pre-plant, my pre-pandemic dream for what Atlanta could have or what the area, Metro Atlanta could have. They needed, in my estimation, they really needed some sort of uh, football stadium because in this town you could have football in anywhere and you'd still get 80,000 people to show up to it. Um but they needed a football stadium that was next to a parade ground, but that was separated out from the rest of the city. Right. So you could have your SEC championship. You could have your Super Bowl. You could have all that stuff. Right. And also a parade ground for you to have your whatever you wanted to have. <laughs> and the rest of us could go about our lives. That was my dream but it didn't materialize while I was there. And, you know, and why that's not going to happen is the economics around building stadiums and the fact that Mm -hmm. teams and others have figured out that they can make arguments for public subsidies and other benefits but in order to make those arguments and ostensibly produce those benefits, they require urban locations. Um, you know, so that's in terms of, so thinking about Atlanta, right? Thinking about Mercedes-Benz mm-hmm. Stadium, full disclosure, the Falcons were a client of mine at my previous firm. Um, mm-hmm. But I wasn't involved at all with the, the um, anything to do with the deal around around the stadium and its development yeah um but right and then you've got the flip side of that which is the the other argument that they can make in terms of economic development which is really i think a gentrific it's really gentrification which is the braves and thinking about that's what cobb county where they they relocated 
And they said, well, we're going to produce these massive tax benefits, massive economic benefits for Cobb County. And that's how you can justify, you know, subsidies and, and, and other, and other benefits. And mm-hmm. I think that public subsidies, as long as that's on the table, mm-hmm. I think that we're not going to see, um, what you're talking about in terms of a, a, a stadium that, you know, really does not interfere with, with the lives of its, its neighbors. But I would also say that um, if we are ever to rethink big events and really create and implement effective strategies to use those events for more economic development, that the fact that they are in cities is a, and, and do have these urban locations is a good thing. It at least leaves the door open. Um, yeah. For, but yeah, right. I, I don't, I don't know. I, I think it's, it's I, difficult I mean, yeah. to see that so, changing. Since you, since you said you were a client of the, I mean, since you said the Falcons were a client of yours, um, the Atlanta United has become a big deal in this town. Um, did anybody in your line of work see that coming? <laughs> I think that. So here's what I guess I would say is that um, first, I'm not. I wasn't that surprised that a team could have that successful of a launch. That an MLS team could have that successful of a launch, just because ten years ago, I, my wife and I went to. Um, we drove around the Pacific Northwest. We spent a few days in Seattle. We went to a Mariners game. And mm-hmm. one mm-hmm. of the days we were there was a Sounders game. Mm-hmm. And I could not believe the amount of people we saw out in Sounders gear. And they were actually playing the Portland Timbers, I think, was the team. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so you saw tons of Portland people. Obviously, that must be a big rivalry or at least was at the time it is i mean yeah yeah so i i wasn't that surprised um that another team could be that successful and i will also say that having worked with the falcons and the arthur the arthur and blank sports and entertainment group i've also worked for a couple other nfl teams and have exposure to other pro sports teams and I I'll tell you I have never seen a collection of senior executive sports and entertainment talent like I've seen mm-hmm. at that organization, and mm-hmm. I think it sometimes creates it might create issues over there when you have a lot of people who want to be the boss because they were the president or the CEO at whatever their other job their previous job was, mm-hmm. um, but that's an organization with a lot of really talented people and they drew not just from other sports teams they drew from disney soccer leagues in the world well they drew i mean i'm talking on the business side they're drawing from disney from Mm. the top the top real estate development firms in the country right they're they are drawing talent from diverse industries and I am knowing that organization. I am actually not surprised that they were able to pull off 
what I think was the most successful opening season for any MLS team. So I I, I'm, was, I'm actually not that surprised. I think, full disclosure, I'm a Atlanta United fan, but I think I heard this statistic or this little fun fact. I'm not sure if this is true or whatever, but you have to go all the way back to the the early days of hockey to come up with a true expansion team that won something that won its championship that quickly. Right. I mean, I mean, yeah, yeah. I, it look, it's a, it is a, the, the success on the field. And Mm -hmm. I think also the recognition that there was a large opening for a family friendly entertainment experience in the Atlanta market. I mean, they, they saw the opportunity and they capitalized on it and they were successful. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, it's a really great organization. I'm, and I'm not just, I not just saying that cause they were my client. They, they're not my client anymore. And, yeah. and um, I'll tell you, yeah, they're, they're, they're a great organization. I'm not, not very surprised how successful uh, they've been. I mean, I guess it gets, yeah, I guess it gets back to a city of a city of this size. Um, you're going to eventually there's going to be a sports team that's going to attract a critical mass, I would say. I mean, yeah. And in hindsight, I guess soccer was sort of perfect. <laughs> but, you know. Um, so, Ben, uh, do you have anything else you want to tell the Internet? So a couple other quick things. If anybody in Staten Island happens to listen to this podcast, um, go check out all of the work that is happening around pedestrian safety and bicycling, uh, especially along Highland Boulevard, our main big long 14 mile street that goes from tip to tail on the island um, and get involved with that. And then I would also say, um, check out, you can come check out my, my consulting firm at agorapartners.com. Um, or also listen to my podcast. My wife and I have a podcast Mm. about Love Island UK. Uh, but, uh, so if you're a reality TV fan, you enjoy cultural criticism, you like British history and learning about contemporary British culture. If you are planning a vacation to the United Kingdom, we will be releasing our tourism guide, uh, later this year, all kinds of fun stuff, um, that, that we're doing around that. So, um, yeah, I'm excited uh, uh, to have this conversation with you, Ben, and, and thank you. Um, this has been really a lot of fun for me. Okay, before you go, I did want to actually talk to you about so the pedestrian safety stuff. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm assuming there was, I mean, of course, obviously, there was a need for it. But did you want to talk about sort of the before and hopefully and the hopefully after period or? Yeah. So here's, I guess, what I would say is that it's right in line with all the stuff we've been talking about in terms of people, people being home more. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, what we saw 
over the course of the pandemic was far fewer miles being driven, fewer vehicle miles traveled, as as we call it in the planning field. But Mm -hmm. per mile traveled, the rates of pedestrian injuries and deaths and bicyclists injuries and deaths increased. It's largely because you have people going faster speeds, Hmm. right? Not looking as carefully where they are going. Also, you know, you, you get hit by a car at 25 miles an hour, you're likely to survive. 35, you're not. So the, I think that there is going to be a greater demand for what we call traffic calming, meaning physical measures to decrease the speed of traffic. And I think there's mm-hmm. going to be more demand for pedestrian and bicycle infrastructure. And so what we have been focused on here in Staten Island, which was named the most dangerous place in the country for pedestrians, and I think Queens was second, but our borough finally came in number one at something. <laughs> and mm. Highland Boulevard in particular was named as the most dangerous street for pedestrians. And mm. we have areas where there are not enough crosswalks, right? So part of Highland Boulevard is a major retail district. And you have multiple bus lines. You have people getting off the buses and trying to cross this big street, a lot of times in a place where there is no light. And, you know, they're getting hit because we don't have crosswalks. We don't have, we don't have lights in places where we really should. Other places in Highland Boulevard, down where I live, there's no sidewalk on any property that the city owns which you know thankfully we we are blessed with some parks and and preserves and wetlands that help manage our our ecology here but on the edges of those properties it's very dangerous for people to walk and the city has not done a good job of building the necessary infrastructure as the population here has grown over the last 30 years and our political leadership frankly doesn't care and hmm. when i and what i've seen is over the last last year i know i'm one of the people over the last year and a half who has gotten a lot more involved in my community mm-hmm. because when you see your, when you ask your city council person what are they going to do about pedestrian safety and they say, well, nothing. I, I, I want, I don't want to lower speed limits. I don't care about sidewalks. It's amazing that somebody, an elected official would say that out loud. Well, they they don't quite, they don't quite say it that way, but they say like, well, I'm against the idea of making anyone's commute longer than necessary. Right. I'm against the idea of putting, cameras up to give people speeding tickets or tickets for running a red light. I'm against that because it's a money grab by the city. Uh, Yeah. And so that's the way they talk about it. But 
And, and hey, maybe they sincerely believe those things, but the net effect is that nothing changes, right? That, in fact, as we've saw, as we saw, things get worse. Um, mm-hmm. And so what we're right now, we're we've been doing a we're in the middle of our uh, safety audit. So uh, mm-hmm. a group of volunteers led by um, uh, a woman who's running for city council. Uh, challenging an incumbent um Mm -hmm. you know she organized a whole group of volunteers to Mm -hmm. do this safety audit and we are walking every every foot of the 14 miles and we're documenting all of the places where sidewalks are missing or obstructed um and other other conditions that are are potentially dangerous places where crosswalks should be added really to complement and supplement the data that the city hmm. has already collected and has ma- and and that you can gather online but there's all kinds of data that they haven't collected and so that's what we're doing and hopefully what what we will end up with is an actionable plan and one of our ideas and it's at least it's a conceptual framework for how to think about the creating this new infrastructure is that we we did the research and we found out that the eight speed cameras in our city council district generate about $423,000 in revenue every month for, or every every year, I'm sorry, every year for the city. Mm -hmm. So if you think about that $423,000 as a debt service payment on a bond issue that the city would make to pedestrian improvements, Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I don't... I don't have the, I don't know the the bond rates and and yields off the top of my head, but I'm I'm just guessing that we're talking about something like twelve to fifteen million dollars, um, yeah, that could support right of twelve to fifteen million dollars of sidewalks, and so mm. this this idea of like okay, yes, the speed cameras we understand that they're very effective in reducing speeding so but let's take the revenue from those speed cameras and put it back into the physical improvements that will make it safer for pedestrians and bikers and also physical improvements to um to streets to make it less likely that people will speed so you know, for instance, I mentioned traffic calming earlier. Traffic calming, there are a variety of methods to narrow the width of a street, which psychologically has the effect of making drivers slow down. And part of the problems mm. we have in a lot of our suburban areas in this country is that the streets are far too wide because they are, they're built literally so two fire trucks can pass each other on the street um, in the event that ever needed to happen. Going to two separate fires. Yeah, I get that. Yeah, but but also, that doesn't make any sense. So why would fire truck A be, be, be crossing paths with fire truck B to get to a fire? Because wouldn't fire truck B have been closer <laughs> in the first place? So, well, uh, yeah, I mean, not to disagree with you, but I mean, I guess, I wonder if there was a generation of politician that was, I guess what I'm trying to say is 
did house fires used to be more common? Well, I think it's more about this idea of that we're going to build, that we're going to take our built environment and not build it around people, but build it around Cars. Fire trucks, yeah, cars, fire trucks, right? But people and car, cars and so think about and stuff. So yeah. Take a look. I believe it's Japan. Mm-hmm. Take a look at all the different fire trucks they have, and they they decided, oh, we're going to create a smaller fire truck that fits more easily down residential streets, mm-hmm. instead of you know, building these residential streets that are really, really wide. And so basically our framework is, hey, if you're going to put the speed cameras up, let's do that and let's take the revenue and invest it in improvements that will eventually render the speed cameras unnecessary. So hopefully that's where we will be in another decade is that we'll have uh, protected bike lanes, sidewalks, and um, we won't need the speed cameras anymore. Yeah. I mean, that that's a thought, um, you know, and also, I mean, I don't know about New York, but in Metro Atlanta, it seems like uh, some of these politicians governed by crisis, like something happens and they change their mind or, you know, you know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah, you, you know, I, I don't saying. think that I don't think that our political leadership can be relied upon to do the right thing for that reason. That's why I think it's important for us as citizens to stay engaged and stay active and, and to, you know, try to make the world a better place every day. Right. And that's, well, yeah, I mean, exactly. Um, hmm. well, this was very interesting, Ben. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed the conversation. I really do. Um, I'm really glad we had this, this talk, Ben. I am too. And, um, if you just hang on the line, um, while this sucker downloads, all right, everybody, uh, have a good day. I'm having a great day and I hope you are too. And all righty. Let's see.